This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. Hey, it's Guy here. So by now, you've probably heard the Silicon Valley mantra, fail fast, fail often. But how can you make sure you learn from failure? Well, today on the show, we're exploring all kinds of failure, from trial, error, and experimentation to the kind of personal failure that exposes our deepest insecurities. This episode is called Failure is an Option, and it originally aired in July of 2016. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Right here? Yes. Sweet. So let's introduce a guy named Astro Teller. Hello. Is that Astro Teller? It is. Which is kind of the perfect name for um, someone with Astro Teller's job. I'd like to think so. Astro works at a place known only as X. People ask a lot about secrecy and how much secrecy we have at X. And there are things that that we're working on at X that we don't talk about publicly. And I think people misunderstand why we don't talk about them. And it's related to the issue of failure. Failure. One of my favorite topics. Is a big deal at X. But let's back up. X is run by Google. And when Astro first started working there, he sat down with Larry Page, one of the company's co-founders. And they tried to come up with a way to describe what they would do at X, what secret stuff they'd be working on. So I said, well, are we taking research? Is that, like, basically what we're doing? And he said, no. Uh, Are we making business units? And he said, "Mm, not really. Are we an incubator? Mm, Sort of, not really. So I was just trying these things out on him, and when I said, are we taking moonshots, he said, that's what we're doing. Why some say the moon? Here's Astro. Why choose this as our goal? On the TED stage. 1962 at Rice University. We choose to go to the moon. JFK told the country we to go to the moon. about a dream he had. A dream to put a person on the moon by the end of the decade. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do No one knew if it was possible to do, but he made sure a plan was put in place to do it if it was possible. That's how great dreams are. Great dreams aren't just visions. They're visions coupled to strategies for making them real. At X, I have the incredible good fortune to work at a moonshot factory. We use the word moonshots to remind us to keep our visions big, to keep dreaming. And we use the word factory to remind ourselves that we want to have concrete visions concrete plans to make them real. But I have a secret for you. The Moonshot Factory is a messy place. But rather than avoid the mess, pretend it's not there. We've tried to make that our strength. We spend most of our time breaking things and trying to prove that we're wrong. That's it, that's the secret. Run at all the hardest parts of the problem first. Get excited and cheer, hey, how are we going to kill our project today? This philosophy of chasing after failure, 
is what Google is using to build its driverless car, which started development in X. But so did Google Glass. Remember that? Not exactly a huge success. So what makes the difference between success and failure? And when failure is what you wind up with, how do you learn from it? How do you recover from it? Well, today on the show, stories and ideas about learning from failure and how to think differently about what happens when you fall flat on your face. It's one of the most hyped tech products that most people couldn't actually buy. So let's talk about Google Glass for a second. A wearable computer that takes photos and video, searches the web, and responds to voice commands. Like we said, it was first developed at X. One of the most highly anticipated tech gadgets. It was supposed to be a huge thing. An estimated 10,000 people in a pilot program are already users. But the features? I'm excited to have the GPS like right in my eye. I'm excited to be able to pull up the images, like if I can Google something. These things were not enough to make it a success. And so Google quietly stopped production of the prototype and moved the project out of X. I think there were some things about what we did that were fantastic. And there were things that we did that I don't think we should repeat. And we can appreciate um, the parts of it that were good and make clear notes to ourselves about the parts of it that we wish um, that we would do differently next time. But failure is hard. It's not It's not fun. I mean, this sounds really great and positive the, w- the way you're talking about it, but isn't it pretty hard to get people to be, you know, to become really excited about failing at something? I mean, h- how do you do that? There are a lot of different ways to do it, but here's an example. The first time I stood a team at X up on stage in front of everyone at X and said, this team has done more to further innovation at X by ending their project than any one of you sitting in your seats has done in the last quarter. There was like an uncomfortable silence. So then I say, and we're giving them all bonuses for having ended their project. All those people sitting in the seats are feeling even more like, wait, what? Then I say, hey guys, take a vacation. And when you get back, the world is your oyster. Find some new project to jump into. And everyone thinks I've lost my mind. But the 10th time I have did that, like no one even thinks about it. They just get a standing ovation every time. I don't even have to say the speech anymore because it's part of the culture now. I want to show you a few of the projects that we've had to leave behind on the cutting room floor and also a few of the gems that, at least so far, have not only survived that process, but have been uh, accelerated by it. Last year, we killed a project in automated vertical farming. Vertical farming uses 10 times less water and 100 times less land than conventional farming. But unfortunately, we couldn't get staple crops like grains and rice to grow this way. So we killed the project. Here's another huge problem. We pay enormous costs in resources and environmental damage to ship goods worldwide. Economic development of landlocked countries is limited by lack of shipping infrastructure. The radical solution? A lighter-than-air, variable-buoyancy cargo ship. But it turned out that it was going to cost close to $200 million to design and build the first one. $200 million is just way too expensive because X is structured with these tight feedback loops of making mistakes and learning and new designs. We can't spend $200 million to get the first data point about whether we're on the right track or not. If there's an Achilles heel in one of our projects, we want to know it now, up front, not way down the road. So we killed this project too. Discovering a major flaw in a project doesn't always mean that it ends the project. Sometimes it actually gets us onto a more productive path. You know, it sounds like a lot of this is is about how you look at it, right? Like, you, you know, you guys didn't fail, but you hit a snag that then forced you to shift your, your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, of course. It helps me that I've reframed what I think of as real failure. I think of real failure as the point at which you know what you're working on is the wrong thing to be working on or that you're working on it in the wrong way. 
you can't call the work up to the moment where you figured out that you're doing the wrong thing, failing. That's called learning. And once you frame it that way, there's this moment where if you stop now, if you course correct now, you can be shame free. But if you keep going forward, the shame starts to build. How do you know when it's time to, um, uh, to, to like pull the plug and say, you know what, guys, this isn't going to work. Let's just like fail hard and move on. That's the really tough part, of course, because yeah. reasonable people often totally disagree about when that point has been reached. They're like, what are you doing right. to us, Astro? So s- there are times when we're trying something and it doesn't work and we try a different way to solve the same problem or de-risk the technology and that doesn't work also. And then we try a third way. Should we try a fourth way? That's the hard part. That's what we spend a decent amount of time arguing over. There are frequently times where I will look at a project and be confident that it's going in the wrong direction. I will say gently that I think so, and then I will step away. First of all, I'm wrong a bunch of the time. And also, if we're expecting them to do these hard things, they need to own it. If it's done to them, it feels like a catastrophe. When they do it, it actually can be empowering. One of the most ambitious projects to come out of X in the last few years is a project called Loon, as in balloon. And it started with this idea. If you were to make what you could think of as a super small, super cheap satellite and tie it to a balloon and put it up into the stratosphere you would have a couple huge benefits. First benefit, such a device would not work like a satellite much higher up in space. It wouldn't need a cell tower. It could send data directly to your phone. And the nice secondary effect, you can have an idea about what either the balloon would be like or this payload, the thing underneath it, which is like this little baby satellite, about how you could make it better. Make a new version and have it up again in a week. Hmm. The turnaround time for satellites is five to ten years. Wow. Think about the learning loop of one week compared to five to ten years. Astro hopes that X's Loon Project could be a way to get Internet access to millions of people all over the world who don't have it and get it to them through a network of balloons floating around the world. So for years now, Astro and his team have thrown themselves at the challenges of this idea, learning really fast and expecting, even hoping, to fail. So since 2012, the Loon team has prioritized the work that seems the most difficult and so the most likely to kill their project. And we're going to fly over places like Indonesia for real service testing this year. The only way to get people to work on big, risky things, audacious ideas, and have them run at all the hardest parts of the problem first is if you make that the path of least resistance for them. We work hard at X to make it safe to fail. They get applause from their peers, hugs and high fives from their manager, me in particular. They get promoted for it. We have bonused every single person on teams that ended their projects from teams as small as two to teams of more than 30. We believe in dreams at the Moonshot Factory. But enthusiastic skepticism is not the enemy of boundless optimism. It's optimism's perfect partner. It unlocks the potential in every idea. Thank you very much. Astro Teller, check out his entire talk on X at TED.com. More ideas about learning from failure in just a minute. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app, and you're good to go. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. 
That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about failure and why failure can be good for us, even though when you're the one doing the failing, it can feel pretty horrible. And and Tim, I should just mention here that I'm terrible with failure. You know, like every time I've had a failure in life, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Is, is that being terrible, though? It's perfectly natural for failure to really hurt. That's just being a human being. There's nothing wrong with that. This is Tim Harford. He's an economist and a journalist who wrote a book about failure. To be terrible with failure is either to be so scared of it that you never do anything interesting or alternatively to be so terrified of admitting it that you continue with a disastrous course of action and you just continue to fail because you keep telling yourself you're not failing and that to me is what it means to be terrible with failure and tim says people who are terrible at failure in this way suffer from something known as the god complex this idea some people have that they're not fallible that they're the experts Here's Tim on the TED stage. I see the God complex around me all the time in my fellow economists. I see it in our business leaders. I see it in the politicians we vote for. People who, in the face of an incredibly complicated world, are nevertheless absolutely convinced that they understand the way that the world works. And this man, Archie Cochran, understood this as well as anybody. Archie was a doctor. So he hung around with doctors a lot, and doctors suffer from the God complex a lot. And there's this one trial he ran many years after World War II. He wanted to test out the question of where is it that patients should recover from uh, heart attacks? Should they recover in a, in a specialized cardiac unit in hospital, or should they recover at home? All the cardiac doctors tried to shut him down. They had the God complex in spades. They knew that their hospitals were the right place for patients, and they knew it was very unethical to run any kind of trial or experiment. Nevertheless, Archie managed to get permission to do this. He ran his trial, and after the trial had been running for a little while, he gathered together all his colleagues around the table, and he said, well, gentlemen, turns out you're right. It is dangerous for patients to recover from heart attacks at home. They should be in hospital. And there's this uproar, and all the doctors start pounding the table and saying, we always said you're unethical, Archie. You're killing people with your clinical trials. And there's all this huge hubbub. Archie lets it die down. And then he says, well, that's very interesting, gentlemen, because when I gave you the table of results, I swapped the two columns around. It turns out your hospitals are killing people, and they should be at home. Would you like to close down the trial now, or shall we wait until we have robust results? Cochrane would do that kind of thing because he understood that uncertainty, that fallibility, that being challenged, they hurt. I wonder if if this God complex thing happens like less and less nowadays, you know, like in, in science and technology, because people seem to be better at embracing failure, like what we just we just heard from Astro Teller, right? That in Silicon Valley, failure is like a badge of honor. Yeah, Silicon Valley typifies that. The idea of evolving a website or or any of the other things you can evolve through trial and error, that feels quite safe. And some people embrace that and say, great, we can fail 10,000 times before breakfast and, and find the perfect solution. And I think one of the wonderful opportunities we have in the world today is that in many areas, it's never been quicker or cheaper to run experiments, to fail on an incredible industrial scale. Let's say you wanted to make detergent. Let's say you're Unilever and you want to make detergent in a factory near Liverpool. How do you do it? Well, you have this 
great big tank full of liquid detergent. You pump it at high pressure through a nozzle. You create a spray of detergent. Then the spray dries, it turns into powder, it falls to the floor, you scoop it up, you put it in cardboard boxes, you sell it at a supermarket, you make lots of money. How do you design that nozzle? Now, if you ascribe to the God complex, what you do is you find yourself a mathematician, you find yourself a physicist, somebody who understands the dynamics of this fluid, and uh, he will or she will calculate the optimal design of the nozzle. Now, Unilever did this, and it didn't work. Too complicated. But the geneticist, Professor Steve Jones, describes how Unilever actually did solve this problem. Trial and error. Variation and selection. You take a nozzle, and you create 10 random variations on the nozzle. You try out all 10. You keep the one that works best. You create 10 variations on that one. You try out all 10. You keep the one that works best. And after 45 generations, you have this incredible nozzle, looks a bit like a chess piece, functions absolutely brilliantly. We have no idea why it works. No idea at all. But the moment you step back from the God complex and you say, let's just try a bunch of stuff, let's have a systematic way of determining what's working and what's not, you can solve your problem. I mean, but the thing is that when you're in a situation where you can't test something over, over and over again, then, then the stakes seem so much higher, right? Because you, you don't get a do-over. Yeah, it's very common when you look at Anything from people investing in the stock market to professional poker players to people who play the game show Deal or No Deal, they all exhibit something called loss aversion. It's just this disproportionate anxiety that I'm losing this game. I went wrong somewhere. We hate admitting that and selling our shares in Lehman Brothers or whatever um, and getting out at a loss. We hate that out of all proportion to what the actual loss really is. And I think that is one of the reasons why people just keep on in a failing situation. Which is, which is pretty understandable, right? Because, I mean, a failure can be debilitating, right? I mean, especially if it's a, if it's a public failure, like a career-damaging failure. Yes. And sometimes I think it really helps to try to, to take the emotion out of the situation. I was really struck by the experience of the great choreographer, uh, Twyla Tharp, who worked with Billy Joel and produced this musical called Moving Out about 10 years ago. It was 2003, I think. And it was a complete disaster. All the reviewers said it was awful, it was naive. She could have just curled up into the fetal position and said, oh, everybody hates me. But instead she said, okay, i got to fix it. And so she just went through all the reviews and she turned them into a spreadsheet, like a checklist. Hmm. How are we going to fix these things? Tick them off. One, two, three, four, just tick them off. And in a few weeks, the show was enormously better, ran for years, won two Tony Awards, and the critics couldn't believe it. But it was, she just viewed it almost as um, an engineering problem. And that was when she stopped the process of failing and started the process of fixing everything. Now, I've been sort of banging on about this for the last couple of months. And people sometimes say to me, hey, well, Tim, it's kind of obvious. You know, obviously, trial and error is very important. Obviously, experimentation is very important. You know, why, are you, why are you just sort of wandering around saying this obvious thing? And I say, OK, fine. You think it's obvious. I will admit it's obvious when schools start teaching children that there are some problems that don't have a correct answer. Stop giving them lists of uh, questions, every single one of which has an answer, and there's an authority figure in the corner behind the teacher's desk who knows all the answers, and if you can't find the answers, you must be lazy or stupid. When schools stop doing that all the time, I will admit that, yes, it's obvious that trial and error is a good thing. When a politician stands up campaigning for elected office and says, I want to fix our health system. I want to fix our education system. I have no idea how to do it. I've got a, a half a dozen ideas. We're going to test them out. They'll probably all fail. Then we'll test some other ideas out. We'll find some that work. We'll build on those. We'll get rid of the ones that don't. When a politician campaigns on that platform, and more importantly, when voters like you and me are willing to vote for that kind of politician, then I will admit that it is obvious that trial and error works, and that thank you. 
until then, until then, I'm going to keep banging on about trial and error and why we should abandon the God complex. And since I started talking about this subject and researching this subject, I've been really haunted by something a Japanese mathematician said on the subject. So shortly after the war, this young man, uh, Yutaka Taniyama, developed this amazing conjecture called the Taniyama-Shimura conjecture. It turned out to be absolutely instrumental many decades later in proving Fermat's last theorem. Prove one, you prove the other. But it was always a conjecture. Taniyama tried and tried and tried, and he could never prove that it was true. His friend, Goroshimura, who worked on the mathematics with him many decades later, reflected on Taniyama's life. He said he was not a very careful person as a mathematician. He made a lot of mistakes. But he made mistakes in a good direction. I tried to emulate him. But I realized it is very difficult to make good mistakes. Thank you. Tim Harford is an economist and an author. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. So as Tim was saying, trial and error and experimentation, those are the kinds of failures you can recover from with time. But Casey Gerald's interested in a different kind of failure, the deeply personal kind, the kind of failure that forces you to ask yourself some really big questions. Uh, have I been courageous enough to live? Have I been courageous enough to be honest? Casey says the answers to these questions kind of make him feel like a failure. Certainly I do. Which might sound strange because on paper, he has accomplished a lot. He grew up really poor. He was an orphan for most of his childhood, but he made it to Yale and then Harvard Business School. He got jobs on Wall Street and then in Washington. And he even started his own nonprofit group. If you were just to write down, like, the timeline of your life, I don't know if anybody would be able to see the failure in, in those things. <laughs> oh, you know, I think about the resume virtues uh, of the narrative of my life. And I think uh, if we look at those as the measure of success or failure, uh, then we've kind of missed the point because I think there are a lot of folks, uh, myself included, who can be uh, on paper very successful and be completely dead. Casey's story is about what happens when you chase success and achieve it, only to find out it doesn't feel like success at all. And it's a story that began one night when Casey was 12 years old he was sitting in a pew at his mainly black Baptist church in East Texas, waiting for the Messiah to come. There we were. Casey picks up the story from the TED stage. Souls and bodies packed into a Texas church on the last night of our lives. December 31st, 1999, the night of the second coming of Christ and the end of the world as I knew it. We had 10 minutes left, and my pastor called us out of the pews and down to the altar because he wanted to be praying when midnight struck. So every faction of the congregation took its place. The choir stayed in the choir stand, the deacons and their wives, or the Baptist bourgeoisie, as I like to call them, uh, <laughs> took first position in front of the altar. You see, in America, even the second coming of Christ has a VIP section. And right behind the Baptist bourgeoisie were the elderly, these men and women whose young backs had been bent under hot suns in the cotton fields of East Texas, and whose hopes and dreams for what life might become outside of East Texas had sometimes been bent and broken even further than their backs. Yes, these men and women, they had waited their whole lives for this moment, just as my grandmother waited for the Oprah Winfrey Show to come on Channel 8 every day at 4 o'clock. And as she made her way to the altar, I snuck right in behind her because I knew for sure that my grandmother was going to heaven. And I thought that if I held on to her hand, I might go right on with her. So I held on, and I closed my eyes. And the prayers got louder, 
And the organ rolled on in to add to the dirge, and the heat came on to add to the sweat. And my hand gripped firmer so I wouldn't be the one left in the field, and my eyes clenched tighter so I wouldn't see the wheat being separated from the chaff. And then a voice rang out above us, Amen. It was over. I looked at the clock. It was after midnight. I looked at the elder believers whose Savior had not come who were too proud to show any signs of disappointment, who had believed too much and for too long to start doubting now. But I was upset on their behalf. They had been duped, hoodwinked, bamboozled, and I had gone right along with them. I had prayed their prayers. I had yielded not to temptation as best I could. I had dipped my head not once but twice in that snot-inducing baptism pool I had believed. I got home just in time to turn on the television and watch Peter Jennings announce the new millennium as it rolled in around the world. And it struck me that it would have been strange anyway for Jesus to come back again and again based on the different time zones. (laughs) And this made me feel even more ridiculous. Hurt, really. I can trace the whole drama of my life back to that night in that church when my Savior did not come for me. And I held out my hand, reaching for something to believe in. I held on when I arrived at Yale at 18 with the faith that my journey from Oak Cliff, Texas was a chance to leave behind all the challenges I had known. But when I found myself with my face planted in the floor and a burglar's gun pressed in my head, I knew that even the best education couldn't save me. I held on when I showed up at Lehman Brothers as an intern in 2008. (laughs) So hopeful that, uh, that I called home to inform my family that we'd never be poor again. But as I witnessed this temple of finance come crashing down before my eyes, I knew that even the best job couldn't save me. I held on when I showed up in Washington, D.C. as a young staffer who had heard a voice call out from Illinois saying, change has come to America. But as the Congress ground to a halt and the country ripped at the seams and hope and change began to feel like a cruel joke, I knew that even the political second coming could not save me. I had knelt faithfully at the altar of the American dream, praying to the gods of my time of success and money, and power. But over and over again, midnight struck, and I opened my eyes to see that all these gods were dead. Wow. I mean, as you were reaching from, like, one kind of, of, of temple to the next, what were you searching for? I mean, what was the thing that was calling you? I think in many ways... What uh, called me was I wanted to matter. And I think that's a pretty fundamental thing. I wanted to not be the sort of throwaway kid that didn't have parents, didn't have any money. You know, I mean, um wanted to be somebody, I suppose. And I looked externally for, you know, if there was a manual, how to be somebody in America 101, <laughs> you know. Um, and I had no idea how to do that. Casey Gerald will continue his story after the break. More ideas about success and failure in just a minute. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Edward Jones. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. Edward Jones Financial Advisors are people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn about this comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This message comes from NPR sponsor SAP Concur. 
Global Head of Sales Ryan Demeray explains how SAP Concur solutions help make managing receipts easy. You simply take a picture with your smartphone, and that picture will now grab all of the important and relevant fields, put it into the software for you. It will intuit the expense type and gives immediate visibility to the finance team. Visit concur.com to learn more. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about learning from failure and how to think differently about what happens when you don't succeed. And we've been hearing the story of Casey Gerald, who did succeed a lot. He went to Yale and Harvard, worked on Wall Street and in Washington. But all of this was somehow unfulfilling. Casey felt like he was just chasing the success and the money and the power. So he decided to start a group to get MBA students to spend their summers helping other people with small social enterprises. And finally, Casey felt like he had a sense of purpose. There was no length to which I would not go to preach this gospel, to get more people to believe that we could bind the wounds of a broken country one social business at a time. And then one night, all of that was put into question. Casey picks up the story on the TED stage. It began one evening, almost a year ago, at uh, the Museum of Natural History in New York City, at a gala for alumni of Harvard Business School. There was pride in a room where net worth and assets under management surpassed half a trillion dollars. We looked over all that we had made, and it was good. (laughs) But it just so happened, two days later, I had to travel up the road to Harlem, where I found myself sitting in an urban farm that had once been a vacant lot, listening to a man named Tony tell me of the kids that showed up there every day. All of them lives below the poverty line. Some of them came to Tony's program called Harlem Grown to get the only meal they had each day. Tony told me that he didn't give himself a salary because despite success, the program struggled for resources. He told me that he would take any help that he could get, and I was there as that help. But as I left Tony, I felt the sting and salt of tears welling up in my eyes. And it wasn't the glaring inequality that made me want to cry. It wasn't the thought of hungry, homeless kids. It wasn't rage toward the 1% or pity toward the 99. I was disturbed because I finally realized that I was the dialysis for a country that needed a kidney transplant. I realized that my story stood in for all those who were expected to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, even if they didn't have any boots. And the shame of that, that shame washed over me like the shame of sitting in front of the television, watching Peter Jennings announce the new millennium again and again and again. I had been duped, hoodwinked, bamboozled. But this time, the false savior was me. In that moment, Casey realized something, that he'd come so far from that small church in East Texas. But somehow, he was right back where he started. So he left the organization he'd founded, MBAs Across America. You know, you know listening to, to the journey that you describe, I mean, it's almost like you had to experience those things to, to begin to understand what it is that you really care about. Yes, uh, I did. And um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, Dr. King's mountaintop speech, mm. you know. And I thought about that part where he says, I've been to the mountaintop, looked over into the promised land, you know. And uh, I, I look at my life and I say in some ways, yeah, I've been to the mountaintop, I looked over into the promised land, and that ain't it. <laughs> mm. we got, we've got to imagine a promised land that is not where you go and you tell some kid in my neighborhood, accomplish something like Yale and Harvard, go and be a Wall Street investment banker, go and you know speak at TED, go and do all these things because then you will be saved. And I'm most deeply grateful 
that it, you know, 30 years almost into this journey, I can say, been to the mountaintop, looked in the promised land. That's not it. Find that promised land that, uh, that is there for you. You see, I've come a long way from that altar on the night I thought the world would end, from a world where people spoke in tongues and saw suffering as a necessary act of God and took a text to be infallible truth. Yes, I've come so far. So I have not a gospel of disruption or innovation or a triple bottom line. I have and I offer a gospel of doubt. The gospel of doubt does not ask that you stop believing. It asks that you believe a new thing, that it is possible not to believe. Yes, the gospel of doubt means that it is possible that we are wrong. And this doubt, it fuels me. It gives me hope that when our troubles overwhelm us, when the paths laid out for us seem to lead to our demise, it will not be our blind faith. No, it will be our humble doubt that shines a little light into the darkness of our lives and of our world and lets us raise our voice to whisper, there must be another way. Casey Gerald, he's working on a memoir about his life. You can watch his entire talk at TED.com. So on the show today, we are learning from failure. And there's something kind of deceiving about failure stories, right? Because when someone talks about how they failed miserably, you know that the story is always going to end with a success. I mean, how often do people like stand up and say, I'm here to talk about my failures. And by the way, I'm still a failure. I have not succeeded. Right. I think about this and I write about this all the time. Sometimes there is no rise. That narrative of sin and redemption that we're all hoping for. Sometimes you're just you in your life and you don't rise at all. (laughs) You just keep going. And that's more accurate for me than the weird fiction of, you know, well, I rose from my mistakes and and I heard an angel sound and everything was beautiful. <laughs> oh, before I forget, um, Lydia, can you introduce yourself, please? My name is Lydia Yuknovich, and I'm a writer. Lydia wrote a memoir called The Chronology of Water, and it's about a different kind of failure, the kind where you feel like a failure for not fitting in. I think failure is part of all of us. Uh, but yes, I think there's something deeper underneath that, which is you're not fitting the stories out there that tell you how to be a person and have an identity. That's a harder, deeper feeling than just, I'm embarrassed. (laughs) It's a feeling of failure that some of us, with time, can work our way out of. But some of us just can't. Here's Lydia on the TED stage. Somewhere in my early 30s, The dream of becoming a writer came right to my doorstep. Actually, it came to my mailbox in the form of a letter that said I'd won a giant literary prize for a short story I'd written. The short story was about my life as a competitive swimmer and about my crappy home life and a little bit about how grief and loss can make you insane. The prize was a trip to New York City to meet big-time editors and agents and other authors. So kind of it was the wannabe writer's dream, right? You know what I did the day the letter came to my house? Because I'm me, I put the letter on my kitchen table, I poured myself a giant glass of vodka with ice and lime, and I sat there in my underwear for an entire day, just staring at the letter. I was thinking about all the ways I'd already screwed my life up. Who the hell was I to go to New York City and pretend to be a writer? Who was I? I'll tell you. I was a misfit, like legions of other children. I came from an abusive household that I narrowly escaped with my life. I already had two epically failed marriages underneath my belt. 
I'd flunked out of college not once but twice, and maybe even a third time that I'm not going to tell you about. But the real reason I think I was a misfit is that my daughter died the day she was born, and I hadn't figured out how to live with that story yet. So you see, I'd missed fitting into just about every category out there: daughter, wife, mother, scholar. And the dream of being a writer was really kind of like a small, sad stone in my throat. When you won that prize, right, and you get this letter, and you're thinking, "Who was I?" I mean, yeah. I mean, it's. Imagine you sitting in your kitchen, you know, sort of saying, "I don't belong there. I'm just a, I'm a nobody." Yeah. So I wasn't sitting there feeling like a failure exactly or a loser. I was just feeling invisible and worthless. Like I didn't have proper weight or worth. I mean, I already knew the fact that I was still alive was a giant success. What I didn't know was how to feel worth to others, and so any kind of prize that came my way just made me laugh. <laughs> and then I have to take myself through the steps of, well, worth is in everyone, and we have to help each other feel it. And I can kind of get to a place where, yeah, I could go sit at that table too. It was pretty much in spite of myself that I got on that plane. And flew to New York City, where the writers are. Fellow misfits, at first you would have loved it. You got to choose the three famous writers you wanted to meet, and these guys went and found them for you. You got set up at the Gramercy Park Hotel, where you got to drink scotch late in the night with cool, smart, swank people, and you got to meet a bunch of editors and authors and agents at very, very fancy lunches and dinners. So, kind of in those first nights in New York, I wanted to die there. I was just like, "Kill me now, I'm good. This is beautiful." On the last night, I gave a big reading at the National Poetry Club, and at the end of the reading, Catherine Kitty of Kitty Hoyt and Picard Literary Agency walked straight up to me and shook my hand and offered me representation, like on the spot. I stood there and I kind of went deaf. Has this ever happened to you? <laughs> and I almost started crying because all the people in the room were dressed so beautifully. And all that came out of my mouth was, "I don't know. I have to think about it." And she said, "Okay then," and walked away. This really, this like, almost kind of. Excruciating difficulty with accepting gestures or saying yes or yeah our opportunities. What's that about? I think for a lot of us who came up and through either sadness or abuse or violence, it's true that we couldn't follow the normal patterns that would show you how to get stronger. So we had to make up ways to. Uh, save ourselves and make it through things, and what that breeds in you is a distrust of um, anything coming toward you, and you have to learn trust over again, and it's hard. And I realize that that sounds pretty sad to some people, but it's true. It's An inability to just say, "Oh, thank you, that's amazing. I feel wonderful." <laughs> um, for some of us, it's a series of steps we have to go through to even admit we deserve anything. There's a story to be told from that, and it's useful. If I could, I'd go back and I'd coach myself. <laughs> I'd teach myself how to want things, how to stand up, how to ask for them. I'd say, "You, yeah, you, you belong in the room too. The radiance falls on all of us, and we are nothing without each other." Instead, I flew back to Oregon, 
And as I watch the evergreens and rain come back into view, I just drank many tiny bottles of airplane feel sorry for yourself. I thought about how if I was a writer, I was some kind of misfit writer. What I'm saying is, I flew back to Oregon without a book deal, without an agent, and with only a headful and heartful of memories of having sat so near the beautiful writers. Memory was the only prize I allowed myself. And yet, at home, in the dark, back in my underwear, I could still hear their voices. They said. Don't listen to anyone who tries to get you to shut up or change your story. They said, "Give voice to the story only you know how to tell." They said, "Sometimes telling the story is the thing that saves your life." Although it didn't happen the day that dream letter came through my mailbox, I did write a memoir called "The Chronology of Water." In it are the stories of how many times I've had to reinvent a self from the ruins of my choices, the stories of how my seeming failures were really just weird-ass portals to something beautiful. All I had to do was give voice to the story. Now I am, as you can see, over 50, <laughs> and I'm a writer, and I'm a mother, and I became a teacher. There's a myth in most cultures about following your dreams. It's called the hero's journey. But I prefer a different myth that's slightly to the side of that or underneath it. It's called the misfits myth, and it goes like this: Even at the moment of your failure, right then, you are beautiful. You don't know it yet, but you have the ability to reinvent yourself endlessly. That's your beauty. Your story deserves to be heard, because you, you rare and phenomenal misfit, you new species, are the only one in the room who can tell the story the way only you would. And I'd be listening. Thank you. Lydia Yuknovich is the author of the Chronology of Water and the novel The Small Backs of Children. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show about failure this week. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkinpour, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Rachel Faulkner. Thanks to our partners at TED: Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. And NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.